This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For 15 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, sponsoring third-party research on a broad range of public management issues facing us today. In fiscal year 2012, the federal government acquired $517 billion worth of products through contracts. Contract expenditures amount to 16% of total federal spending. Purchases range from simple products like office supplies or landscaping to more complex products like advanced weapon systems and program management services. As the difficulties confronting the federal government become increasingly complicated, so too will the types of services and goods that they need to address these challenges. The federal government is increasingly acquiring products that have qualities that cannot be clearly or easily defined in advance and that are difficult to verify after the product or service has been delivered. These products are called complex products. The acquisition of complex products requires more sophisticated contracting approaches. What are the challenges of acquiring complex products? What lessons can be learned from the Coast Guard's Deep Water Program? And how can government executives most effectively manage complex acquisitions? We'll explore these questions and so much more through the works of the research team, Trevor Brown, Matt Potofsky, and David Vance Lyke, authors of the recent book, Complex Contracting, Government Purchasing in the Wake of the U.S. Coast Guard's Deep Water Program. Brown, Potofsky, and Vance Lyke discuss the promise and perils of government contracting while providing wide-ranging practical advice on complex acquisition. I'm happy to welcome to our show two members of the research team, Trevor Brown. Trevor, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And David Vance Lyke. David, welcome. Thank you. So before we get into specifics, um, I'd like to explore the importance of acquisition in the pursuit of government agency objectives. A lot of folks who listen to the show may be familiar with other mission support functions like financial management or HR. But what is acquisition in the federal context, and how is it a key strategic enabler for government to get its missions accomplished? So I think most people, when they think of acquisition, think more simply of purchasing, just buying simple stuff like paper clips and um, copy paper or office supplies. Uh, but the reality is, is that increasingly uh, federal agencies need critical uh, goods and services to be able to perform their core missions. So in the report I wrote for IBM, I highlighted the, um, the Black Hawk helicopter in the interdiction of Osama bin Laden and the ultimate taking his body out of the compound. Without the Black Hawk, the mission doesn't succeed. 
Today, the thing that's probably most on people's mind is the uh, healthcare.gov website. In the absence of that website working successfully, the Affordable Care Act doesn't work successfully. Now, you probably don't think about that when you're buying a website. You think, oh, I'm just buying a website. But no, you're buying a critical, integral part of your program. And, and that's what acquisition is now. It's acquiring essential goods and services to be able to perform basic mission functions inside organizations. David? And I would say, you know, as Trevor's mentioning, it's really important to be able to get those purchases right. But another key aspect, really, for the listenership of, of this show is really thinking about being strategic as well. Mm-hmm. And that raises the question of what are you buying from the market? Mm-hmm. Are you buying just products? Or at times, are you also buying something else, like the ability to do something that the government itself lacks the expertise or capability or the, the capacity to be able to execute? So what is the federal acquisition process? How does it work? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? So an expert would tell you there are hundreds of steps in this process. Uh, I'll break it down simply into three phases. The first is the pre-award phase. That's everything that happens before you buy the product. So that's determining uh, whether you want to make the product internally or you want to go out to market. If you decide you're going to go out to market, that's surveying the market to see what's available. Uh, That's meeting with the ultimate consumers of that product within the agency to see what is it they need, which ultimately ends with you, the purchaser, defining what it is you want to the degree that you can. We want it to be a certain size, shape, and do all sorts of different things. Federal contract officials call that the requirements definition portion of the pre-award phase. The second, once you've decided what you want to buy, is the award phase. And you can think of that as the literal transaction. That's putting the RFP out, the request for proposal that describes the product and the way it will be purchased. And then it's meeting with potential vendors, recruiting people. It's almost a sales pitch to the vendors or potential vendors to come forward with proposals. Then it's selecting who's the winner going to be. Then the third phase and final phase is the post-award phase. It's everything that happens now that we've purchased the product. For some kinds of products, the post-award phase is literally just the delivery of, here's your box of paper clips. For other kinds of products, things like information technology systems uh, that take a long time to produce, the post-award phase, once we've selected the vendor, means managing a relationship with the vendor. David, did you want to add anything? One part that we so often miss here is how critical the management part is once the contract has been awarded. So for a lot of individuals, doing those first two steps are critically important. And, you know, when we think about the federal acquisition regulation, there's a lot of guidance, you know, right up until the time you make the award. But then post-award is where things become a, a little less clear. And there's much more discretion. Just to follow up with uh, the good points Dave just made, um, and as I say in this report, and I'm not the first to say it, buying is managing. Um, So the whole procurement process is a management activity. It's managing a series of relationships and potential relationships 
Uh, and those are management competencies and requirements. And, and I want to get a sense. So we, we, we understand you guys have done a wonderful job of explaining the strategic importance of contracting to mission uh, attainment for government. You've given us a sense of the phases at a high level. But when you talk about selection or the award, what are the criteria used to really make that judgment? And if you can tell us a little bit more about this criteria, how does it signal oversight too? What are the three areas that we're talking about and why are they important? So there's a document that perhaps we'll talk about in a minute called the Federal Acquisition Regulations that basically set the rules on what's permissible in contracting. And one of the things that the FAR does is specify what the goals of federal acquisition are. And buried in there are two sort of approaches to setting the criteria by which we would judge an acquisition or evaluate it. One is what's called best value. Uh, and best value is a broader interpretation of what we're getting out of the exchange. And it typically involves three criteria, the sort of holy trinity of contracting. That's cost, mm-hmm. performance, and schedule or delivery. Cost is how much does it cost? Did it come in at the price we expected? Performance, does it do the things we want it to do? And then schedule is did it come in on time? In a best value acquisition, a procurement official is allowed to balance each proposal along those three criteria and make trade-offs of, oh, well, this one's more expensive, its cost is higher, uh, but the quality that we see in the proposal is higher. So one approach is to balance those three criteria. The other approach that's specified in the FAR is called the LPTA approach, which is lowest price, technically acceptable. So all those three criteria are still in play, cost, quality, and schedule. But here the argument is if we can precisely define the product, we can say as specifically as possible, here are the performance criteria. It's technically acceptable. Well, then we're going to focus on price. So we're going to minimize our selection to does it cost the lowest amount to produce it. So there it's a narrower set of criteria that define why we select one bid over another. Uh, And depending on what we're purchasing, it may make more sense to use one or the other. If we're buying copy paper, Mm -hmm. we use the LPTA approach. That's the guidance of the FAR. Just focus on cost. You can specify the size of the paper, its durability, how many pieces, et cetera. Whereas if we're buying information technology where we're not so clear what it is that we want and we've got these competing criteria at play, then you are to pursue the best value approach. Dave, did you want to add anything to that? One of the things that Trevor mentions in terms of setting out the two approaches, best value for versus lowest price technically acceptable, is that embedded there are also a set of values, uh-huh. right? And, and, and with those values, a set of priorities. And so in some cases with best value, What you're emphasizing is perhaps a longer-term relationship or something that has a a greater degree of complexity to it. You may be looking at issues that have been proven, you know, in an evidence-based way to be more effective relative to some other options. And from a cost-value perspective, it may be worth 
the extra cost to get a bit more on the value side. Trevor. They're thinking about, well, how do these three criteria help us fulfill our our mission requirements? How do they help the acquisition of this product? I don't want to just make sure I'm following the rules. I want to make sure that I'm following the rules and I'm delivering something at the time that that it's needed uh, that helps the other people in the organization fulfill the agency's functions and does so in a way that's resource efficient so we can buy more of it or use our resources in ways to enhance the overall performance of the organization. And that can be more challenging whenever the government is trying to purchase perhaps for the first time, a product that doesn't currently exist or is trying to engage the market around the production of a, of a service, for example, that they have not bought in the past. Well, you know, Trevor, you mentioned the FAR, the Federal Acquisition uh, Requirements. Do you have anything more you want to say about it particularly? Like, what are the key components? So the FAR is um, it's a phone book. I've interviewed any number of federal procurement executives, and it's fascinating the kind of divergent views on is this a good regulatory regime or is, is this a cumbersome one. One school of thought about the FAR from those who use it to guide their acquisition is that it is Byzantine, overly procedural. It's, it's not clear how to get the information one needs uh, about how to guide procurement. The other view from perhaps the more creative and crafty procurement officials is it's more of a recipe book. Uh, you can find what you need in there. Uh, and these rules are more suggestive than, than prescriptive. And one of the challenges with the FAR, obviously, is you know every time the government purchases something new or wants to enter in uh, the market for a new product or or something to that extent, it begins to add more rules. And so part of the reason this becomes viewed as Byzantine and binding is that some individuals look at it much less analytically, you know, much more like a checklist. I've got to check these things. I've got to make sure these I's are dotted, these T's are crossed. As Trevor makes note, there are a number of very uh, effective federal acquisition leaders who are thinking creatively about how to use the FAR and and take some guidance and and not view it as necessarily binding. One thing that's very interesting about the FAR, though, that's important to note, and that is there's no one single FAR. Mm -hmm. Each agency has the authority to supplement the FAR uh, with its own FAR, its own acquisition regulations. So, for example, the Department of Defense has the DFAR, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations. The Department of Homeland Security um, has its supplements to the FAR. So, this is a positive in the sense that different purchasers, different agencies can tailor the document to the needs of their the kinds of goods and services that they buy. Uh, throughout the conversation and your your insights, I've noticed there are some challenges to this this whole process of acquisition within the federal space. Could you highlight maybe the top three challenges that are being faced and maybe some strategies on how folks can overcome them? Well, the first is, as I just mentioned, is the variability in the FAR or the regulatory process across federal agencies. On the one hand, this creates flexibility for the agencies, but it does have some diminishment of competition effects in the marketplace. It just makes it harder to sell to the federal government. Uh, so there's sort of two things that federal managers can do as they work with the procurement personnel in their, their agency. One is to take a review of the, the FAR, the regulations in their agency, and see first off, 
Are there any opportunities to streamline this and make it easier for both the people on our end that engage in the procurement function and then the vendors who sell to us? And then to look, how do our regulations stack up to other agencies? Is there any way we can streamline these and make them more similar to other agencies so we expand the, the marketplace? And so that's, that's one big challenge. A second one that we haven't touched on yet is, and it's huge, and it'll span everything we talk about here, is the state of the procurement workforce. Right. You know, I think there's this belief that when you go to the market and you buy stuff, you don't need people anymore. But the reality is, particularly given both the scale of purchasing that goes on at the federal government and the kinds of things that the federal government buys, you need you first off need a lot of people to handle those processes, and you need an incredibly well-trained, sophisticated group that understands how they perform their technical function, but do so within the overall management structure of the organization. A third one is that contracting is, is risky, and depending on the kinds of goods and services, the products that you're buying, some of them are, are riskier than others. What are the sources of those risks is, is critical for, for, again, a manager to understand how can they use procurement to achieve mission success. In the report, I focus on elements of the design of the contract as a source of risk. A big debate in the federal procurement world is about the relative benefits of what are called fixed price contracts, which set the price at the point of purchase and therefore put the risk of any cost overrun on the provider. So the vendor has to make sure that if you said it was going to cost $100 and it ended up costing them $110, they're eating that extra $10. Versus cost reimbursement contracts, which there's an agreement up front about what the cost elements will be, but the ultimate price of the product is a function of how much of it gets consumed, how much of it gets purchased, and how much it ends up costing to make it. And so in that situation, the purchaser bears the risk of a cost overrun. And so in 2009, the Obama administration, through the uh, Office of Management and Budget, encouraged all agencies to review their use of cost reimbursement contracts and look for opportunities to turn some of those into fixed price arrangements because the idea was that would transfer risk to the vendors rather than to the purchasing government. What lessons can be learned from the Coast Guard's deep water program? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, the Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness in complex contracting with Professors Trevor Brown and David Vance-Like. So, Trevor and David, you folks have mentioned in our last segment complexity and complex products when you were describing the federal acquisition process. And I'd like to get a handle. Let's, let's talk more about the complex nature of some of the products that the federal government's procuring because it needs to procure these things given the uh, complex nature of its mission, uh, varying nature of its mission. So what, what type of products are we talking about and what are some of the basic uh, options for procuring them? There, there's a distinction made in the procurement community between goods and services. Goods are the hard stuff in terms of literal hard things. You can touch them, feel them, whatever. And services are the services that people provide. We think that's the wrong distinction. The important distinction we think is between, as you mentioned, complex products and simple products. And think of products as inclusive of goods and services. Simple products are easy to describe and easy to make. Complex products are hard to describe and hard to make. And by hard to describe, we mean that they are hard to literally write down in a contract what it is that I want to buy. It's very difficult for me to specify everything about that product that I want. Things that are hard to make are things that require what academics would call specialized investments. Investments that are unique to the production of that product that can't easily be transferred to some other product if people stop buying it. So I'd be remiss in not mentioning and congratulating you gentlemen on your latest book that's out by uh, Cambridge University Press called, uh, its title is Complex Contracting, uh, Government Purchasing in the Wake of the U.S. Coast Guard's Deepwater Program. And also your co-author, Matt Batosky. So I read this whole thing in a, in a couple of days. And I have to say it's probably one of the most readable and approachable books narratively on contracting. And I really suggest folks grab a copy of it because it is chock full with really good information. But I want to talk about why you picked the Deepwater program. What lessons you draw from that program in terms of understanding strategies to better procurement? But more importantly, what were some of the assets and services that uh, were being procured by the Coast Guard under deep water? So the United States Coast Guard is the largest Coast Guard in the world. There are about 39 major Coast Guards in the world. And the United States Coast Guard, in terms of its assets, its uh, shore stations, its boats and ships, its helicopters and its planes had the 37th oldest fleet out of the 39 major Coast Guards around the world. And the Coast Guard has a very complicated set of missions. I mean, in in times of war, it, it works interoperably with the United States Navy and the military branches. In times of domestic peace, it has a range of different missions that it pursues. Uh, You know, you think about migrant smuggling or drug smuggling, that's one. It has kind of a law enforcement perspective. If you think about things like the Exxon Valdez or Hurricane Katrina, it has these other kinds of environmental stewardship, search and rescue functions, and a variety of different missions. And to do, to carry out those missions, it really needed a system of assets, a system that was modernized, that was integrated, that could work hand in hand and really could create the kind of value that a small Coast Guard, about 40,000 people, uniformed and civilian, need to be able to fulfill the series of missions that they have to perform on a daily basis. And it's safe to say that the two reports you've done for the IBM Center 
sort of the genesis for this book. That's correct. I mean, the 2008 report, which was the first look at the Deepwater uh, case, really built on doing a fairly broad investigation of not just the Coast Guard, but also looking at the supplier and vendor community, looking at the oversight community, looking at the uh, vendor community that was not an active participant in the deep water program itself as a procurement, looking at uh, a whole series of third parties and doing about 150 different interviews with individuals we were able to put together what we think was an objective presentation and one that was not as stark and black and white as some people may have liked and and how so much of the media portrayed this. And that was really helpful because when we did the 2008 report, the Coast Guard, uh, the chief acquisition officer at the time was uh, Admiral Gary Bloor, and he went on Admiral Thad Allen's website and posted a blog and basically said, this is a good report, these guys got it right. So this case had a lot of complexity to it, but as noted, there were some innovative things on contract design, some innovative things in terms of agency transformational efforts, some innovative things in terms of how to engage the supplier market, but some things that did not work out as well. And there are some reasons for that that we can talk about. Yeah, and I want to get into those innovative concepts that we're talking about and define your terms, as you were saying. Before we get into some of the lessons that that were learned from this uh, procurement, what is a system of systems contracting strategy? And what does it mean to be a lead systems integrator? What are the positives and potential negatives? So when we think about a system of systems, one of the real criticisms right now with healthcare.gov is that, you know, you had more than 50 different contractors each working on their own component piece. The system of systems is knitting all of those different systems together, all of those different components. And so for the Coast Guard's Deepwater program, this was all their mission activity that happens on shore, all their mission activity that happens in the water with boats and ships, all their mission activity that happens in the air with helicopters and airplanes. So a systems of systems is getting these systems to actually work together. The lead systems integrator is essentially think of, you know, a general contractor. They're the ones that manage all the prime contractors. They're the ones that manage all the subcontractors. They have technical expertise. They have contract management expertise. And they really understand the procurement processes. And they're the direct liaison to working with the client, in this case, the the Coast Guard. Where it can go wrong, and one of the places where it was less effective in the Coast Guard's deep water program, is when the lead systems integrator is also a vendor, when they're also a contractor, when they also have something that they want to sell. So there are real pluses and minuses. Unfortunately, as a result of the Coast Guard's deep water program, Congress took a 180-degree turn and when Congress turned over in 2006, sort of took a, an approach of throw the baby out with the bathwater. No longer will the government be using lead systems integrators for these kind of systems of systems approaches. In fact, the government will become the integrator. And as we're seeing with healthcare.gov, government, even when it's very well-intentioned, lacks the capability, the experience and expertise the technology and the resources, and the actual capacity to play that integration role. And that, I think, has been one of the big lessons that's come out of the deep water, and we're seeing it play out right now, real time. Trevor, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I'll just give a very 
sort of simple conception of a systems of systems. Just think of it as an integrated or interconnected product uh, with different pieces and parts that are put together. So when most of us go buy a car, uh, we don't buy tires, an engine, a radio, an air conditioning system, uh, and they don't all come in a box with some assembly required. We buy a car. That is a system of systems. Somebody has to put all that stuff together for us. And that brings us to the second acronym, the LSI, the Lead Systems Integrator, or the General Contractor. So you've already kind of alluded to it. So the Coast Guard chose the uh, System of Systems strategy, uh, and they also had a single Lead System Integrator. I'd like to talk about something that's misleading in that conversation was around that this was one big contract. And it actually wasn't just one big contract. I'd like for you guys to tell us a little bit more about the three-tiered pyramid that uh, basically is reflective of the complexity of the deep water program. Could you tell us a little bit about that? There was a master contract called an IDIQ, an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. And the best way to think about that is it was a menu. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a menu of all the things that the Coast Guard and ICGS agreed could be purchased over a long-term period. So at the outset, uh, the Coast Guard and IC ICGS, Integrated Coast Guard Systems, entered into this IDIQ, basically agreed, uh, Coast Guard said, we're going to buy our, uh, our products from you, and they will be from this list. How much they are and what they specifically will be, we'll determine that later. That takes us to the second layer of this contract. That's where individual task orders were written. Think of them as individual contracts for the different items off the menu. So we're going to buy some boats. We're going to buy some helicopters. We're going to buy some information technology. We're going to buy some program support. Uh, and each one of those is a different task order. So the Coast Guard still enjoyed some discretion uh, within their big contract about the different items that they, they were going to purchase. The third layer down was where they nailed down all the details. We've decided we're going to buy X number of boats. We decided we're going to buy X number of planes. What specifically are those things and what are they going to look like? That got hammered out in what were called integrated product teams, another acronym, IPTs. And that was the venue in which the details about each contract, each task order, would be specified. To be fair, it was clear at the outset that the Coast Guard and ICGS were embarking on a long-term relationship. So the expectation was, if all had gone according to plan, it would have been a 25 to 30-year relationship. Because now we're going back to that top level. The initial IDIQ was for a five-year period that could be renewed up to five total times, each of those in five-year increments. So there was some expectation on behalf of the parties to the exchange that it might last for 25 to 30 years. But the reality was, and this came to, to pass, that each side could exit that relationship at any one of those exit points. There were exit ramps built in. So it would be unfair to say that the contract that ICGS and the Coast Guard entered into was a 30-year contract. It was potentially a 30-year relationship, but contractually it was not. So how, I mean, in a sense, how is it a prototype 
of relationship contracting in a sense. So you mentioned that in your research, in your book, and that there were two important attributes. I think you may have alluded to just one of them uh, in terms of the contractual structure that really gave the impression that this could be a win-win. No, I think you're right, Michael. I mean, when you think about this, what you're, what you're signaling to your potential partner is that if, if you're happy and we're happy, there's potentially five more or four more past the initial relationship and that this relationship could last potentially for 25 years and, and even beyond that. I mean, when you think about what the suppliers were producing, these are things that are going to need to be replaced and modernized and upgraded as we go along. So this is potentially a very long relationship. Trevor? Michael, would you allow me to sort of step back and sure, sort of absolutely. paint the the kind of dilemma that the that the Coast Guard faced in acquiring a complex product? Uh, and this is a dilemma that any agency faces when they go to buy something complex. And again, think of complex as hard to define and hard to make. And then I'll explain how the contracting approach tried to address some of those challenges. So the challenge when you go to buy something that's complex hard to describe and hard to make, is first off, at the outset, you, the purchaser, have some notion of what you want to buy, but you can't articulate that precisely. So it's hard for you to specify, these are the evaluative criteria by which I will judge the product when I receive it. That poses a challenge for the producer of that product, because they don't know exactly what it is that you want, so they don't know exactly how to make it. And they don't know how much it's going to cost. And that's what everybody wants to figure out. How are we going to make this thing and how much is it going to cost? So you can't know that at the very beginning. That's going to get figured out. Sort of the research and development will occur as you are producing the product. So that's challenge one. The second is, is because it is hard to make, requires specialized investments. Both sides are going to invest in the production of the product in such a way that if either one decides to exit, they're going to lose a lot. They've made these big investments that will be lost if they exit. And that leads to a problem that's called lock-in. Both sides are, are now locked into a relationship that is very expensive for them to exit. That's risky, not just for the purchaser, but also for the vendor. How are we going to govern the relationship? Because we're going to have to figure a lot of this stuff out as we go along. And so what the contract structure that the Coast Guard set up was designed to try and address that problem. That top-level contract, the IDIQ portion, couldn't specify at year one what I'm going to want by the end of year 30. Uh, And the idea was, let's build in some rules that, that set up a healthy relationship between the buyer and seller that promote cooperation. And we can get into the specifics of that in a minute if you're, if you're so interested. But so part of it was building a set of rules into the contract structure that encouraged both sides uh, to cooperate. So you basically described the concept of uh, the prisoner's dilemma, right? Is that what you were doing? Because you, you used that uh, metaphor, if right. you will, in the book. And, and I want to get into the fact, before we get into how you guys describe the phases in which the relationship sort of melted down, why, why did it fail to, to get that win-win uh, dynamic in place? And could you identify some of the problems that op- ultimately derailed it, the, the program? The, the prisoner's dilemma is that when you buy a complex product, I can't, I can't write everything down, 
And so that means that within that contract, the behavioral choices I make, the decisions I make are going to have a lot of influence on whether we wind up in a win-win where we're both better off or a lose-lose. And the nature of a complex product is uh, I can't easily tell whether you're doing things that are benefiting the product uh, or the relationship until the very end, until I actually get the product. Because it's hard to define, it's difficult for me to know whether I'm getting the win-win. And so I have to have some mechanisms in place to promote your cooperative behavior. And I have to ultimately have some trust and faith that that you will do things that are beneficial to the relationship and the ultimately the delivery of the product in order for us to continue and carry on. Yeah, actually, that would be a good transition to that. The, the, you, you guys do a wonderful job of explaining sort of the meltdown, if you will, or the separation. Could you tell us a little bit about those phases that you kind of highlight and then maybe some draw some lessons from those phases, each of those phases? So the three phases are... The first stage was what we call the honeymoon phase. Both parties were really excited, ICGS, Coast Guard. This was this promising new potentially 25-year, 30-year relationship. And the Coast Guard was going to get all this value out of it. And ICGS thought they were going to get a stream of income and burnish their reputation with a new, new client. So at the outset, both parties entered into it in good faith, thinking really good things were going to happen. Then, phase two, they get into the actual, now we've agreed on what the menu looks like. Now we're going to start buying stuff off the menu. Some of those things worked well. Some of those things didn't work well. And then it gets, the second phase is foggy. And Dave can talk in a minute about some of those particular instances where things got foggy. But it was unclear when things didn't work well whether it was a result of the purchaser, the Coast Guard maybe wasn't clear, ICGS maybe made a decision to cut a corner. Because it wasn't clear, it was foggy. They didn't know which side was, was the one causing whatever the negative outcome was. Over time, there were enough accumulations of those uncertain outcomes and who was ultimately responsible that led to a divorce. They ultimately, in the third phase, said there's just enough bad stuff on both sides that we decided we're going to terminate this this relationship. This is a management process Absolutely. and a leadership process. But um, David, did you want to get dig deep into the? Sure. When you think about the Deepwater story for that example itself, so many of the Coast Guard officials thought because they were using an LSI, they didn't have some of those same management and leadership responsibilities, that they didn't have the responsibility, the coordinating function, the ongoing communication function, the information exchange function, or even some of the ongoing monitoring functions. And so it's easy to misunderstand one another. So, for example, you know, at the IPT level, There'd be a lot of information exchange, but it turns out that decision authority was never sort of really specified. So, you know, you and I have this great meeting. We do all this great brainstorming. I think you're capturing the notes. You think I'm capturing the notes. And then we both leave the meeting and we don't know, well, who's going to take care of it over what period of time, what's going to move the ball forward. We need this within five days, not 30 days. And this is where it can lead to some other kinds of miscommunication. So one thing that the Coast Guard used because they were 
they had a more limited acquisition uh, shop for the deep water program is they used something called these undefinitized contract actions. And what that meant is that every time, you know, the supplier came to them and said, you know, Coast Guard, we need a decision made on this action. The Coast Guard, if it did not make a timely decision within a certain period of time, the vendor would just go ahead and make a decision. But that meant that because the Coast Guard had not objected to the decision, then the decision becomes definitized and it goes forward. But, you know, for something so big in terms of scale and complexity, that decision is probably not just a once-in-time decision. It has a lot of multiplier effects, spillovers, and it can drive up costs pretty significantly. And so when the Coast Guard got a bill for undefinitized contract actions, they thought it was going to be something small. Instead, it turned out to be north of $350 million dollars. So when the Coast Guard decided, okay, we have this 110-foot boat, it does a lot of things, well, they put the boats into operation and the hulls on these boats began to buckle. Long story short, they begin to underperform. A congressman from Mississippi deems this the boat that don't float. There's a 60-minute story. There's a whistleblower. And all of a sudden, you know, what was a well-intentioned short-term fix now everyone's pointing fingers at one another. And this is where you really get into the whole accountability regime. And what you end up losing is the ability to s- start talking with one another because now everyone's looking at blame attribution. And so I think this is one of the areas in which the relationship really begun to change because there's this powerful external oversight community. They do some modernization. They do some upgrades to it. It doesn't really work like they intend it to, and people then begin to think that this is the picture that's going to emerge for the entire project. And rather than both parties being able to then speak with one voice. So at the end, each side had the best of intentions, uh, but this misunderstanding led to the finger pointing enhanced by oversight and press scrutiny that led to that third phase of divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other assets that, that failed or didn't meet the standards. There were some that worked very well, but this case, more than any other, exemplified the challenges of acquiring a complex product and how you wind up in this situation trying to figure out who's responsible for the thing not working. Was it because Coast Guard didn't treat the asset with care? Or was it because ICGS sold them a bill of goods, sold them a product that wasn't going to work? What are the challenges of acquiring complex products and services? And how can we better manage acquiring them? We will explore these questions and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report 
provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness in complex contracting with Professors Trevor Brown and David Vance-Like. Given your book and your research, what are some of the things that people, government executives, can learn to make these complex contracting uh, decisions and, and efforts successful? So it sort of turned the page to the more positive highlights. What did you gentlemen learn from your work that uh, you offer in your book, an outline in your book, that would be very helpful to government executives who are facing these kinds of decisions? In fact, I think one of the things that we learned the most was how important it is to talk to other parties, right? How important it is to learn, how important it is to understand each other's preferences and motivations and making sure that each other really is on the right page. And at the outset, that can look very costly and time-consuming. I think one of the real positive things is agencies for sure are taking the acquisition function more seriously. They're not seeing it as just some backwater clerical operation. They're seeing it as a strategic management responsibility. But even so, is the client always right? When do you engage the client? When do you really try to educate the client? When does the client say, you know, but but here's how I'm thinking about it? And again, I think this is one of these areas where you have to have more communication up front to make sure that both your goals are aligned in terms of mission fulfillment and the role, the performance aspect that that acquisition serves for the agency itself. Trevor, did you want to add? One of the things we put in the book at the very outset is there have historically been two approaches to acquiring complex products. Mm -hmm. One is a very rule-driven approach. We talked about the FAR at the very beginning. It's follow the checklist and be more precise about writing those rules. The other approach, which is seen as so the sort of diametric opposite is don't worry so much about the rules. In fact, we should relax the rules. And what we should do instead is build trusting relationships, the whole relational contracting notion. Vendors are good. Government's good. Let's just all get along. We can worry about the details later. So it's the rules versus relationships. Some people looked at Deepwater and said, here's an example where we did too much of the relationship route. We trusted industry. And now what we should do is go back the rules direction. Our view on these things at a very high level is, is both. You got to have Rules that promote cooperation, they can't be overly specified because of the nature of the product you're buying. You can't write everything down at the outset. But you can put in certain kinds of governance rules that promote both sides getting along in those gray areas of the contract. Secondly, you need to structure a relationship that promotes cooperation, that encourages both sides to continue to work with each other doesn't necessarily presume at the outset that the other side is trustworthy. Instead, it creates opportunities for that trust to be built up over time. The third part is creating the conditions under which both parties understand each other and understand those rules. Uh, so I gave you the example of they both wrote C-State 5, but they interpreted it differently. Uh, it takes time to 
understand that the Coast Guard is different than the Navy. You can't just walk in and presume, oh, I see flags on their shoulders or their, their chest. They're going to be just like the Navy. No, they're different. They understand these things differently. You have to build a mutual understanding of, of what it means to be cooperative. So the book guides the reader through this sort of general framework of crafting the right rules, setting up the right relationships, and building that mutual understanding that can only be born over a, a series of interactions over time. Now, within that, there are lots of specifics. So, for example, one that connects to things we were talking at the very beginning, LSIs are not a bad thing. Right. I mean, we heard stories in the wake of Deepwater, uh, and there were congressional efforts to literally banish the word LSI from uh, from the procurement regulations and guidelines. Governments can't buy LSIs. That's foolish. You need a general contractor. You need integrators to put things together. Great example of this is healthcare.gov, the website. One of the principal failures of this is the absence of an LSI. No one of those 55 vendors was specified as being the one who was going to have to put all that stuff together. The presumption of all of the, the vendors was, oh, well, that's the Department of um, Health and Human Services job. They're the integrator. But they don't have the capacity to perform those integration functions. Maybe in the future, we'll live in a world in which the federal government will build that capacity, the systems integrators, the program managers, to be able to perform those functions. But in the absence of building that internal capacity, they're going to have to buy it. And the deep water case is a great example of how you need an integrator to pull all these things uh, together. They're not necessarily bad things. And there are plenty of positive examples. We highlight uh, the Nimitz, the U.S. military's successful acquisition of aircraft carriers. Uh, And here you have a very challenging market situation in which there's only one purchaser, the Department of the Navy is the only one that buys Nimitz-class aircraft carriers, and there's only one provider. Historically, it was Newport News, uh, which has been bought by Northrop Grumman. So there's not a lot of buyers and sellers in this marketplace. They are in a long-term relationship, but it's been a very, very successful long-term relationship in the sense that the Department of Defense has acquired an asset that allows it to project its strength and fulfill its mission requirements over a 100-year period now. And the vendor has successfully been able to remain profitable and continue to produce a product uh, for a single uh, buyer. I I think one of the things about your book that I took away from it is exactly what you just illustrated. You do lay out the right way to do this given your research. But you also give a very clear success uh, case studies too that are very spot on. I mean, the Nimitz is a great example of that. And how uh, government executives can learn from what didn't work in the past. But let's talk about the future. What does the future hold? And this is sort of a a wide, open-ended question, but what does the future hold in federal contracting that you gentlemen see? And more particularly, what about complex contracting in particular? What what do you see changes, any changes down the road, any any enhancement to the way the, the capacity issue or what have you? What do you think? One easy way in the future to reduce the risk of, uh, of complex contracting, that's an easy solution, stop buying the stuff. The easiest way to minimize the risk of acquiring complex products is to stop buying it. 
that's not going to happen. Um, the, the U.S. federal government is continuing to push the edge of the envelope on the acquisition of sophisticated information technology, advanced weapon systems, integrated healthcare systems, all of the mission requirements that face us, all the wicked problems that are out there demand the acquisition of complex stuff. So you, you can't stop buying it. In fact, I think it's only going to accelerate. Uh, and it's going to cascade down to lower levels of government. We used to think of things like aircraft carriers and the deep water system as kind of boutique exotic products that only the Department of Defense buys. But the reality is every government buys information technology. The life cycle on the average information technology system is 18 months, and that's probably going to get faster. So everybody's going to need to figure out how do we acquire this, this complex stuff with rapid future change. That's uncertainty about what we're buying. Interestingly, I gave a talk to a bunch of local purchasers once, and I said, these are people at localities, counties. I said, what's the most exotic thing you bought? Three or four of them said, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles. This is something we think of, oh, no, that's just the Department of Defense prosecuting the war in Afghanistan. No, everybody's buying this crazy stuff. So it's not going away. So the risks are not going to go away. I think the open question is, is how do you respond to those risks? One thing that I specified in the, the report um, that's a theme that runs throughout our book is you got to invest in the workforce. Uh, and so a question before policymakers, particularly before Congress, is are you going to put the resources forward to invest in the acquisition workforce? Are you going to allow agencies to buy employees to be able to staff their procurement function. From the agency standpoint, the open question is, are they going to take the steps to integrate what used to be a back office function into the central management core? Clearly, our recommendations are, you got to do that. You, to buy is to manage. And so agencies should follow the pathway of the big purchasers, like the Department of Defense, a stellar example of how you professionalize the procurement core uh, that other agencies need to follow suit. Uh, so that's a that's a big one. Some of the other things are at some point someone's going to have to revisit the FAR. The regulatory regime needs to be at least examined. In the debate about whether we should keep government running, our encouragement is we should move that debate to how do we make the government run well. And unfortunately, politically, that debate seems to be about whether the private sector should perform functions, i.e. we should minimize the size of government versus whether the public sector should perform functions, i.e. we should increase the size of government. That's the wrong debate. Both of those sectors are involved in performing public activities. Contracting is an example of where the public and the private sector interact to generate value for, for all of us. So rather than have a debate about which one is better, we should have a debate about how do we make them work together. And that's what contracting really is about. How do we create a system in which the government can acquire those services and goods, those, those products, so that they get things delivered at cost on time that work for them? How do we, how do we get stuff that works? Uh, and that means that, that I would hope that members of Congress, policymakers, would start to hold hearings not on whether we should get rid of stuff, but how do we make it work better? Um, and so in healthcare.gov, 
I've been actually pleasantly surprised that some of the more recent testimony has begun to focus on what can the Department of Health and Human Services do to not just make the website work better, but how can they improve their their acquisition function? I think this is where, you know, some of the people who listen to your show, like members of the Professional Services Council, NCMA, NIGP, one of the things that comes out in all of their reports is more skills, not just the skills of compliance and following regulations, but skills like negotiation, relationship management skills, managing the market skills, getting out and actually talking to vendors. And it's not only just having some technical expertise, right? You know, this is what a certain type of IT system would have. And it's not just kind of contract acquisition skills. It's broader set of analytical skills, how to think about some of these trade-offs ahead of time. And I think that's an investment that's not going to be easy to come, but is much necessary. One of the things that I've heard people at DOD say is that they've worked long and hard with the Defense Acquisition University to move away from just FAR compliance skills to really thinking about, you know, negotiation skills and how to manage the market and understanding how, you know, the breadth and depth of the market on some components and how thin the market is in in other areas. And so I think, you know, this is where the acquisition workforce has to be a priority. And I think, you know, until, you know, we've seen kind of fits and starts in every administration, and this administration has not made acquisition a priority. It has made, you know, the notion of insourcing a priority. But then even there, there's been a lot of variability. And, you know, if you're going to make insourcing a priority, you also have to make resources for training and development and capacity building a priority. And you just can't say we're bringing it all in-house. You need to have the people in-house to do it. So either way, the capacity issue is really a big issue. It's an enormous issue. So David Vance Lyke from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University and Trevor Brown at the Glenn School at The Ohio State University. I want to thank you gentlemen for joining me today. This has been a lot of information. The book is excellent. Thanks for coming in and thanks for being here. Thanks. It was great. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Michael, thank you very much for having us. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professors Trevor Brown and David Vance Lyke, co-authors of Complex Contracting, Government Purchasing in the Wake of the U.S. Coast Guard's Deepwater Program. You can order or download a free copy of their IBM Center report, The Challenge of Contracting for Large Complex Projects, at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, the Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. 
Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org.